0: Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts, what will happen if we don't change? And what can we do to create a better future? I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next.
1: Well, well, I think that the stigmatisation of abortion does stigmatise and undermine all reproductive health care. So we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about the pregnant body in need of health care.
2: I mean, hormonal contraception for men has been shown to be effective for 50 years virtually. However, it's never taken off because in clinical trial, men that have taken it haven't been able to tolerate the side effects
3: at every level the world around us is literally built for the male body. Every accommodation is made for the male body.
4: I'm really worried that it could play out to be like Handmaid's Tale as what's happening in in the US because we know that you know the US and what happens over there in terms of healthcare has repercussions for the rest of the world.
0: In the summer of 1955, Gregory Pincus, one of the male co-inventors of the birth control pill, discovered the perfect place to test the new oral contraceptive, Puerto Rico. Pincus and his colleague, John Rock, needed to conduct large-scale human trials to receive the US Food and Drug Administration's approval to bring the pill to market in the States. But legal, cultural and religious obstacles stood in their way. In Puerto Rico, however, the US territorial government was looking for ways to curb endemic poverty via population control. According to PBS's American Experience, there were no anti-birth control laws in the books, and although its population was mostly Catholic, residents didn't follow the Pope's prohibition on contraceptives. When working-class women in a housing project were offered the pill, it was an appealing alternative to sterilisation or abortion, the usual methods they used for limiting their family size. But they didn't know that the drug was still experimental or that they were participating in a clinical trial. The researchers also didn't tell them about its potentially dangerous side effects. And to ensure no accidental pregnancies occurred during the trial, the initial dosage was much higher than it is today. After a year, the pill was shown to be nearly 100% effective when taken properly. But 17% of the unwitting test subjects complained of serious and sustained side effects, including nausea, dizziness, headaches, stomach pain and vomiting. According to the Washington Post, three women in the trial died, although the link to the drug is unclear because there was no investigation and no autopsies. Pincus and Rock dismissed this information outright, believing many of the complaints were psychosomatic, all in the women's heads. Besides, what was a little bloating and nausea compared to the benefits of an effective contraceptive? The pill was approved by the FDA in 1960 and rushed to market. Although the drug played a major role in women's liberation, it's hard to overlook the deceit and exploitation that helped bring it into the world led by male doctors, legislators and drunk company representatives who ignored and minimised the legitimate concerns of the women along the way. The Puerto Rico pill trials were far from the first problematic incident in the history of women's reproductive health and rights. As the events of 2022 have shown us, they certainly won't be the last. Today we're tackling a new topic on the podcast, reproductive health. Women's reproductive health care has historically been overlooked by medical science and is still treated as taboo in many cultures. Is women's health care behind men's? How does making reproductive health care inaccessible hurt us all? And seriously, what's going on with that male birth control pill? Before we begin, I'd like to mention that although we use the word women throughout the series, these matters are not restricted to cisgendered women alone. All people assigned female at birth are affected by these issues and often face even greater challenges because of them, including everyone in the conversation and when advancing solutions is the only way forward. Now, without further ado, keep listening to find out what happens next.
3: Hi, my name is Paula Michaels. I'm an associate professor of history at Monash University and the current head of the School for Philosophical, Historical and International Studies. I am a historian of the Soviet Union, and I specialize thematically in the history of medicine. Most of my prior work has been on history of childbirth and on colonial medicine. Paula, welcome. Thank you for having me, Susan.
0: Why is calling a woman hysterical such a horrific
3: thing to do? That is such a great question. And I think every woman who's ever been called hysterical knows in her gut that they do not want to be called that. It's because it implies that they're out of control and that they have no ability to reason, that they're being governed completely by their emotions and are thus um, incapable of being engaged with rationally. It's a very disempowering thing to say to a woman.
0: And where does the word come from?
3: So it comes from the, the Greek word for womb and it tightly links women's emotional upheavals with their reproductive capacities.
0: Right. So we are hysterical or irrational because we're women.
3: Exactly. So women, you know, another way of phrasing it, if uh, this hopefully is not too vulgar, but the phrase that women are on the rag Mm. is similarly an invocation of connecting their emotional world with their physiological capacity to reproduce. Have we ever done that with men? You know, that's funny you should ask that because there was a brief period in the 1950s when there was a diagnosis of male menopause Hmm. that was associating men's kind of more depressive states at middle age with hormonal change. And um, men so resisted and were so kind of turned off by being diagnosed as menopausal that they started... um, you know defining the same cluster of symptoms as depression.
0: Let's let's uh, take a little walk down historical lane.
3: That's my favorite lane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how throughout history, how has the female body been understood medically, particularly in comparison to the male body?
3: Yeah, it's difficult to talk about one without talking about the other because they're mutually constituted. Yeah. And the the Going back to that original question about hysteria, the female body is linked with nature and the male body linked with reason in the Western tradition that kind of creates this division between mind and body, which we don't see in other non-Western cultures. And it's certainly not in that same bifurcated way. So there's a long tradition of women being associated with a lack of reason, with Highly emotional uh, states, and men being the ones who um, have power exerted through their superior reason. So, when you know, going back to that earlier conversation about hysteria, it is a quick way to silence a woman to call her hysterical because of the way it invokes really millennia of tradition about undermining women's authority by linking it them to nature.
0: And are we still seeing any of the echoes of this thinking in the way that women's bodies are understood even now medically? Like I, I guess I wonder, one thing I think I hear about a lot is women with endometriosis saying, no one takes this seriously. I had to see 10 doctors and suffer for 15 years before anyone was even willing to investigate this properly. I wonder, is that a, a, a throwback to the way women's bodies have been medicalized, but also the way that women are seen as, as weak and emotional?
3: Um, yes, but it's also connected with the fact that for generations, men have set the research agenda. If men suffered from endometriosis, we'd have had a cure a long time ago or at least a clear sense of, um, you know, treatment and the origins. But the priorities for research are set by men and until very recently also the parameters of how how studies are conducted. So another example that's less clearly gendered is um, our heart attacks. So the, the symptoms that women experience at the onset of a heart attack are, are different from the ones men experience. But what we're all taught to look for are the, experience, the, the symptoms that men manifest. And so it takes re- a researcher who's going to say, well, let's just make sure that women actually have the same physiological symptoms, the kind of warning signs of heart attack, and in, and in fact they don't. But if you take men and male bodies as normative, then you don't know to look at women's bodies as, as, as something that's not deviant or different but, you know, equal but needs special attention.
0: But, I mean, that's just so, just as an aside, that's just so significant because you think of the public advertising campaigns that have been around identifying the early signs of a heart attack and it's, it's so uniformly
3: what we now know as a male experience. That's right. And the other thing is that men are often the ones that are associated, you know, so heart attack is seen as something more close, more masculinized, but Mm -hmm. actually women um, are equally likely to be victims of heart attacks. That's really interesting. Um, Another example to, about this way in which this long history of associating women with a lack of reason um, speaks to the ways in, w- in which governments try to regulate women's bodies, because it's from an assumption that somehow women cannot be trusted to or have some sort of flawed capacity to make decisions about their own uh, bodily autonomy, you know, obviously most vividly on display in abortion regulation.
0: Right. Right. Because even when we talk about the term reproductive health, that's seen as such a gendered thing. We're talking about women's repro- – but men have reproductive health issues yes. as well, but it's never really seen as, as part of that suite of
1: conditions. That's
3: interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Right. It's like men reproduce too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya Penovich. I'm an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Business and Law at Deakin University. Tanya, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Can
0: I start by asking you to explain to the listeners what happened in the US recently with Roe v. Wade?
1: No worries. Well, I, I should start by explaining what Roe v. Wade was. So this was a 1973 decision of the US Supreme Court which conferred federal constitutional protection on the right to abortion two related cases and eight
3: separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws, forbidding it, except possibly during the final months.
1: So the right to choose, to terminate a pregnancy, was found to fall within the ambit of the right to privacy, which in turn came from the US Constitution's protections of personal liberty. So this was a fundamental right, but a right that was not absolute. So it required balancing with the state's interest in safeguarding maternal health and also the potentiality of human life, as the court described it. So to achieve this balance, the court set out a trimester framework, barring states from banning abortion during the first trimester, allowing laws that regulate abortion to safeguard maternal health during the second and allowing higher level regulation in the third trimester when the fetus had attained viability in the sense of the ability to have a meaningful life outside the womb. So at this point, the state's interest in protecting fetal life permitted the banning of abortion except where necessary to preserve a woman's life or health. So, so that was the ruling and it was challenged a number of times and in 1992 it was refined in the case of Planned Parenthood and Casey where the Supreme Court found that laws which imposed an undue burden on abortion prior to that stage of fetal viability would contravene the right to privacy. So, So what these decisions meant was that states could not just ban abortion state abortion laws had to comply with that constitutional framework set out by the court. And um, what happened in June was that uh, constitutional framework was demolished by the Supreme Court in the case of Dobbs and Jackson Women's Health Organization. So a five-four majority of the court, um, the five including the three Trump-appointed judges, found that um, since abortion is not expressly mentioned in the text of the Constitution or deeply rooted in the history and traditions of the United States, it is not protected by the Constitution. So they they overruled Roe.
0: It's a sad day for the court and for the country. Let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk...
1: And and what this has meant, the states have been free to enact wide-ranging abortion restrictions, and that's what's happening right now.
3: body? body? body. This morning the radical Supreme Court is eviscerating Americans' rights and endangering their health and safety. So within hours
1: of the decision, about nine states had... Move to ban abortion and now we're on a trajectory of half of US states either having banned or um, soon to be banning abortion.
0: For people who just listen to that explanation, they may sound, well, that's all very interesting and no doubt important, Um, but that's the US. It doesn't really have any relevance here to us in Australia. It's a very different system. By and large, women still can access abortion if they want to in Australia. So other than, you know, wondering what's happening in the US,
1: should we have any greater concern than that in Australia about that event? We should absolutely have concern about that in Australia. So firstly, it shows how vulnerable hard-won gains are and um, and certainly in Australia we've been on a trajectory of decriminalisation in the past 20 years. But that is not to say that, that those hard-won gains cannot be rolled back. So all you really need is a critical mass of politicians who are committed to enacting legislative change, and, and we've seen those politicians in federal and state parliaments, and um, we we also need to be mindful of the influence of the U.S. anti-abortion movement in Australia, and that that influence has grown. So, so since the 1970s, we've. Um, We've looked our anti-abortion movement has looked to what is happening in the u s. We've invited uh, speakers on when I say we the anti-abortion movement has invited u s speakers um, to advise and uh, undertake speaking tours and and some of those speakers that that the anti-abortion movement has invited are sometimes really quite extreme members of the anti-abortion movement. So in 2015, Right to Life Australia invited Troy Newman, president of Operation Rescue, on a national speaking tour. So Operation Rescue is is known for its militant um, clinic blockades and and that tour didn't proceed because Newman's visa was cancelled Um, on grounds which included his writings which questioned why abortion-providing doctors are not executed. Uh, This in a a country where uh, violence directed at abortion providers is is really um, a a strategy by some elements of the anti-abortion movement to block abortion access. What we've also seen in Australia is are domestic chapters of US anti-abortion organisations. So, so these groups have established themselves in Australia, and we've we've seen Australian um, actors and politicians increasingly replicate the the discourses and the strategies of the US movement. So, so we need to be mindful of this. Are you seeing any um,
0: indication in your professional experience that? we could be starting to trend towards stricter uh, regulations around abortion in
1: Australia? I'm certainly aware of attempts to enact stricter regulations. I mean, abortion in Australia remains a conscience vote issue, but, but there have been increasing attempts to politicise the issue and, and there have been a number of prominent politicians who have been been committed to enacting restrictions. So so we need to be very mindful. I think that those attempts are growing as the movement looks to its US counterparts and, and increasingly borrows its language and tactics. Do you think we could argue that forced birth is a form of gender-based violence? Yes, yes. So uh, requiring someone to give birth irrespective of their their autonomy, their choices and their circumstances is a form of gender-based violence. And and this has been recognised by United Nations human rights bodies. And there are other violations of reproductive rights that also fall within this category. So these include forced abortion, uh, involuntary or coerced sterilisation, and the mistreatment and abuse of of people seeking reproductive health care. So for example, some of the the conduct that we see outside clinics in the United States and and until recently in Australia. There's a
0: lot of stigma around abortion.
1: Does that stigma also then
0: trickle down into women accessing other forms of health or reproductive care?
1: Well, well I think that the stigmatisation of abortion does stigmatise and undermine all reproductive health care. So we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about the pregnant body um, in need of health care. So, um, for example, in the US right now and, and elsewhere where abortion is decriminalised, we see that that um, miscarriage and stillbirth become um, become the basis of questioning. We see in some countries women charged with homicide this has even happened in the US but it's it's more common in El Salvador and we also see where there, there's uncertainty in the law um, and stigma doctors refusing to provide health care for fear of loss of license, litigation, prosecution. So refusal or delay of treatment for miscarriage or for ectopic pregnancy, which which is life threatening. Uh, So we, we see all of those consequences.
4: Hi my name is Safira Husseini and I'm a pharmacist. I have worked as an academic at Monash University and I'm still affiliated with Monash University as a uh, adjunct associate professor. I currently work as the senior pharmacy research manager at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and I also have an honorary position with the University of Melbourne. My main area of research is women's health and sexual and reproductive health which I'm very passionate about, and my main role has been to advocate for enhanced access to emergency contraception. Safira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you explain for those that wouldn't
0: know, what
4: is emergency contraception? Sure. So as the name suggests, you use it in emergency situations when uh, you've had unprotected sexual intercourse. For example, the most common reason is when a condom has broken. Uh, or when you've missed an oral contraceptive pill. It's commonly known in the public domain as the morning after pill, but this suggests incorrectly that it can only be used the morning after. And when actually, how long can you use them? Up up to when? Really important question, Susan. You can use it up to five days. There are two different medicines uh, available from pharmacies. One can be used up to three days and the other one can be used up to five days. And how do they work? Yeah, um, this is also a really important question and a really important myth to dispel. Uh, some people think that they work by preventing implantation of a fetus in the utero, in the uterus, sorry, um, but they actually delay or prevent ovulation. So it's like casting a net on the egg, so that it doesn't meet with the sperm and doesn't, um, you know, result in a pregnancy.
0: Why do you think there are so many misunderstandings about what emergency contraception is? Like you said, there is this big misunderstanding that it's in fact preventing an embryo or a fetus or whatever term you want to use
4: from being implanted when that is not the case at all. How have things gotten so confused? Yeah, it's because it was a postulated mechanism of action similar to the birth control pill when it originally came out. And then uh, data from clinical trials and what we call phase four trials when it's out in the community has shown us that that's not the case. And it also originates from the US. So the FDA, which is the um, the drug administration body who approves all the medications in the US, they um, have actually retained this postulated mechanism of action on their Levonorgestrel, Gestural, which is one of the products, or Plan B is the trade name, they've retained that mechanism of action on their label till today. Mm. And it's it's been um, disproven. And so I think that's what's propelled this confusion in the community, firstly amongst health professionals who would have originally been trained in uh, university degrees that this was the way or this is the way that emergency contraception works. And since then, the new data has come out showing that it doesn't and if they're not keeping up to date with knowledge and, you know, doing continual professional education, um, then that myth just, you know, uh, perpetuates. And also it, it gets talked about in a lot of women's health magazines and through friends and family. But this, this is quite significant because this is a very politicised issue
0: now. There's a very big difference between preventing an egg from being released and preventing an embryo from attaching to the uterine wall Um, when we look at what's happening in America and just attitudes socially towards abortion these would now be perceived as totally different uh, things and would absolutely affect the way that women might feel about accessing um, emergency
4: contraception, but also the availability of emergency contraception. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, They're definitely two different mechanism of actions and it also um, points to the fact that the medical definition of pregnancy and when pregnancy starts is different to some of the right-wing activists or conservative Um, Conservatives who uh, believe when a pregnancy starts. So they believe that it starts at the point when the egg and sperm meet, um, which is not the medical definition. And uh, that has again been taken out of context in the US. And it doesn't help that this label for Plan B still has that mechanism of action on it and they're refusing to remove it. So, does that mean, and and you might not know this, so Mm. if you don't,
0: feel free to say that, but does that mean now, therefore, in the US with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, Emergency contraception is now not available because it's seen as enacting
4: abortion? So, definitely, there's been mass buying of emergency contraception because of uh, the criminalization of abortion in most states and the belief um, that Republicans have that the abortion tourism is occurring, so that people are moving between state lines to go and get an abortion and that's what they're trying to block. So a lot of women are going out and buying uh, emergency contraception, which is still available from pharmacies, but there is a fear definitely that it, it's going to run out. The supply is not going to be able to keep up with the demand. What are some of the barriers that women face in accessing uh, their preferred sorts of um, pregnancy prevention medications? This is a such a vital question. There's so many barriers. I actually don't even know where to start, but if we start by um, talking about emergency contraception itself. Uh, when we look at pharmacists, there are still pharmacists whose knowledge is not up to scratch around how emergency contraception works. Uh, they're still doing a little bit of gatekeeping. And this is not representative of the whole profession, but you know, it's small pockets now. There are abortion deserts in Australia. And when um, the previous health minister, Greg Hunt, was shown this data on these abortion deserts, that fueled the need for getting a telehealth item to prescribe um, uh, medical abortive patients in the pandemic. So that's when you know he sat up and realized, actually, this is a big gap in care. Um, so then there's the cost of uh, an abortion, there's access issues, there's travel to get one, especially if you live in a rural or remote area of Australia, uh, and there are a complete lack of doctors in there. And also, if there are doctors, they're not advertising this as a service um, there's sort of like an underground network apparently word of mouth where that's how women find out that there's this doctor who's the abortion doctor because they don't want to be stigmatized as that. The burden of responsibility for family planning often falls on people
0: who can become pregnant and not their partners so what about men? Dr. Sab Ventura is a senior lecturer at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a researcher in male reproductive pharmacology. He's leading a team that's developing a non-hormonal contraceptive for men. Sab, welcome.
2: Thank you very much, Susan.
0: Is there much of a demand for male contraceptive pills?
2: Well, the social science at the moment um, suggests that perceptions have changed in the last, say, 10 or 20 years, and a lot of young men, particularly late teens to early 30s, that age bracket seems to be very keen to have something, uh, um, some sort of male contraceptive that they can use.
0: That's interesting. Why do you think it's changing generationally?
2: Yeah, I think society's becoming a bit more in tune with um, what's best for the world, and particularly things like women having more opportunity for career progression so they can choose when to have children. So the more options for contraception that there are, the more choices women will have.
0: Medically, there are a lot more uh, contraceptives available for women. Why is that? Is it easier medically to design?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So biologically, it probably is easier to stop a woman's fertility because they only ovulate one egg per month, uh, whereas men will have 100 million sperm in an ejaculate. So you have to stop 100 million sperm compared to just one egg per month uh, having said that there are it, it's not that hard so it's um, it is possible to say make mice or rats in completely infertile mm. if, if we want to
0: and do you think men will be more interested in uh, something like a contraceptive pill as opposed to a condom or something more permanent like a vasectomy
2: uh, absolutely and I think that's one of the things that the the young generation is keen on so um, I mean it's a generation where popping and pills quite normal. So I think if they had a daily pill to take, yes, that would be far more convenient than certainly a vasectomy and yeah, the condom, which is, you know, quite interruptive and can dull sensation.
0: Would, um, you know, thinking about the contraceptive pill that you are designing at the moment with your team... Would that have fewer side effects because it's not hormonal than so many of the ones that women take?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That's why we've tried to design a non-hormonal one. I mean hormonal contraception for men um, has been shown to be effective for 50 years virtually. Hmm. Um, However, it's never taken off because in clinical trial men that have taken it haven't been able to tolerate the side effects. Not that they're any different to what women get, just Mm -hmm. that men just can't tolerate them, whereas women tend to be, yeah, I can do this.
0: Wow. There's a lot in that. Yeah. I wonder, this is obviously completely outside your area, so I'm asking you as an individual and not as the, the head of pharmaceuticals, do you think women were more willing to put up with it because the attitude was, well, it's this or having a baby that I'm not ready to have? Whereas for men... Yes, obviously, they would be the father, but they're not the one carrying the baby. So the threshold is lower?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think you're right. I think women obviously will have more of the burden um, if they do get pregnant. Um, However, I I do think it's changing a little bit, and I do think that men are feeling more responsible. Um, If if a woman gets pregnant, they still feel like they are responsible for something, and, and responsible for the upbringing of that child um, if it gets born. So that's certainly changed. But, I mean, I guess the woman is always going to have the greater responsibility than the man.
0: So just so I'm clear, are you saying that there already are male contraceptive pills that are successful and available but just almost no one takes them?
2: Well, they're not on the market or anything, but they have been tried in clinical trials and they are effective in that they can make a male infertile. It's just the side effects that men can't tolerate, which has mean they haven't progressed any further.
0: Wow. This is astounding mm-hmm. to
2: me. It's, well, <laughs> there's, there was even a historical uh, clinical trial back in the 20s or 30s where they used um, male prisoners somewhere in the US to try uh, a certain enzyme inhibitor as a male contraceptive. And again, it was effective. Mm. However, what happened was um, whenever the men who were taking the pill, drank alcohol, they would get terribly sick.
3: Mm.
2: And that was enough to like stop the trial.
0: Wow. Yeah, I actually don't know what to do with (laughs) all this information. Um, Is part of the problem maybe that women haven't been open enough about how unpleasant hormonal contraceptives can be for us so that maybe men don't realise, like women just have it and it's uncomfortable or it causes these side effects and women just deal with it. So men don't realise just how unpleasant it can be for women. Do we need to complain more as women is what I'm asking you. Yes or yes? It would would probably help.
2: (laughs) It would probably help. But I I think the problem was that they developed one for females first. Mm. So all the women started taking it and then, you know, everyone else in the society thought, oh, well, it's under control now. You know, we don't really need anything else. If it had been the opposite way around and men had it first, Mm. it might have been different.
0: When do you think we might start seeing male contraceptions on the market?
2: Hmm, that's hard to say. It's really dependent upon how much money went into the research. I mean, it just is the whole field is moving so slowly because there's just not enough money hmm. to make the research go any faster. I mean, it might never happen. That's it depends. It needs to be a change in demand, really.
0: Why is there not enough money? Is it because there's a sense from pharmaceutical companies that men just aren't that interested? It's sort of like you said, it's being managed well as it is. We don't need to really change anything.
2: Yep, yep. A couple of things there. Firstly, a pharmaceutical company, if they're going to develop something like a male contraceptive, they'll probably have to put a billion dollars into it. They want to be sure they're going to get that money back at least and you know they really want to be sure that they're going to make some decent profit um, after that. So they can't really see that at the moment. Um, the other thing is the people in charge of all these pharmaceutical companies and government grant giving bodies for medical research, they're all older men virtually. So they're the people who think we don't need it really and that's a generational thing and might change as younger people get into positions of power.
0: Generational shifts in power take time, of course, and some of our expert guests fear that that clock is ticking. Here's Safira again. Safira, if you cast your mind 50 years into the future, imagine we don't change anything in Australia when it comes to women's access to reproductive medication.
4: What does the future look like to you? Uh, I'm really worried that it could play out to be like Handmaid's Tale as what's happening in um, in the US because we know that you know the US and what happens over there in terms of healthcare has repercussions for the rest of the world. I'd like to think that our healthcare system is better designed and it's, um, you know, it it can protect the rights of women, but at the same time, I don't think we're taking the right lens that we need to take, which is a reproductive justice lens. So, you know, um, access to medications, access to services has to be viewed through this reproductive justice lens where everyone has... The personal um, uh, right to autonomy, bodily autonomy, and they have the right to choose whether they become parents um, and also whether they parent or if they can parent in safe and sustainable communities. I don't think we're quite there yet. So um, if we don't do anything, for example, if we don't remove this gender Medicare gap as well that exists, where, for example, the um, rebate for an ultrasound for, for the scrotum, is higher than the rebate for a ultrasound for the breast or a pelvic examination, which is just absolutely ridiculous. So women have these huge out-of-pocket costs. And even for the copper IUD, that's around $100 just for the you know, medication, but that doesn't cover the cost of the insertion fee. Why is the
0: ultrasound for the scrotum so much cheaper than for any female body part? What's that about?
4: Yeah, you tell me. So I think uh, men's men's bodies and perhaps their illnesses are prioritised more than women's and women's women's health is not um you know a life course approach has not been taken for women's health and we are far far behind reaching this uh, sustainable development goal which one of them is maternal and newborn child health and we have not reached that at all
0: Human rights, reproductive and otherwise, are at stake around the world and the hard-won gains of women and AFAB people are on the line. To avoid sliding into the dystopian Gilead of The Handmaid's Tale, we must take action. Next week on What Happens Next, we'll talk to some of the people at the coalface of reproductive health and rights. Thanks to all our guests today, Dr Tanya Penovich. Dr. Paula Michaels, Dr. Sab Ventura, and Dr. Safira Hussaini. For more information about their work, visit our show notes. You'll also find links to all our sources there. If you're enjoying What Happens Next, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share the show with your friends. Stay tuned next week for part two of Reproductive Health on What Happens Next.